right. Well, the Lord be with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your grace and your presence uh, that is in our midst. Lord, as we sing, uh, as we uh, listen for your word today, uh, we trust that you're with us and that you're speaking. Lord, tune our hearts, uh, our spiritual ears in, uh, in such a way, Lord, that we could hear what you're saying to us uh, so that we could respond. Lord, your words are life. Uh, they are truth. Uh, they, they, uh, Lord, their life, and we want to be able to uh, receive from them today. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, we are in the uh, third week of Advent here, and uh, as Spencer mentioned earlier, it is the week of joy. That's the theme uh, that we celebrate. So we lit the pink candle, because pink feels uh, fairly joyful, doesn't it? I mean, it's hard, it's hard to be sad when pink is present, right? It's a, it's a very joyful color. Um, you have a very pink coat. It's, very, it's a very joyful coat, yeah. Um, and so uh, it's, it's interesting because, um, as Spencer mentioned, this, uh, this week, this theme of joy, it seems to go cut against the grain a little bit of the kind of Advent we're trying to celebrate, right? Advent, where we've been talking about, hey, Advent's a season of expectation. It's a season of longing. It's a season of repentance, even. And so instead of jumping right ahead into Christmas joy and all the warm fuzzies, we've been trying to say, no, let's, let's fast, let's pray, let's expect, let's get in touch with our longing. But here, right smack dab in the middle of Advent, we've got this candle of joy. We've got this theme of joy. Our readings talk about people uh, laughing with joy. So what is that all about? What's happening here? Did we sort of give up on Advent? It's too hard. The Christmas songs are too much. Uh, we just have to experience some joy. Is this happy, clappy Christianity? Is this a faith that refuses to acknowledge suffering? No, that's not what's going on. Um, something really important is going on in these readings and in this week uh, of Advent. Uh, and it's this, in the midst of our disappointed hopes, our unmet longings, uh, and promises that have yet to be fulfilled, God is present among us, assuring us that all his promises are yes, in Christ Jesus, bringing us Christmas joy, even in the midst of Advent longing. That's the good news we're proclaiming today. Uh, how many of you guys know who Desmond Tutu is? No. Yeah? Like two. Two people know who Desmond Tutu is. All right. Uh, what, Deb knew? Okay, good. That's good. Well, you don't need to know who he is. I'll tell you who he is. He uh, was the archbishop. He's the retired archbishop of Cape Town. He's a South African uh, bishop in the Anglican Church. Um, and in the 80s and 90s, he was heavily involved in the fight against apartheid in South Africa. And uh, he was known as a man, if you look up his, if you go home and Google Desmond Tutu, most likely the photo that you see, uh, almost all the photos you see will be of him smiling or laughing. He was known to be a man who was filled with joy, which is fairly remarkable considering the horrors of apartheid. If you read any of the stories of the injustices that happened, um, and the, the really, really rough things, the horrors uh, that happened there. It's remarkable that a man who was intimately involved in fighting against those things and who had to look at those things straight in the face could be such a man of joy. It was, it was a remarkable thing. It actually was something that drove people nuts about him. His enemies, his enemies didn't like that about him. Uh, and uh, this flowed into the whole fight against apartheid. And so the, the organization he was leading in 1988 uh, was called the General Council of Churches, I think, the South African Council of Churches. 
And uh, they had a, uh, a headquarters uh, in Cape Town, and, and in 1988 it was bombed. Uh, actually, they found out later the president of South Africa himself ordered the bombing. He intentionally ordered the bombing because they were, being, they were so effective in, in this fight against apartheid, and these, they were trying to hold on to power. Um, and so uh, 23 people were injured. Thankfully, nobody was killed. A news commentator talked about the scene as people from, the, from this organization started arriving at the building. Um, and seeing the horror and the bloodshed and everything that was going on here and just the, the feeling of, man, feeling attacked. If anybody, if you've ever had your house broken into or anything like this, you know that there's this traumatic sort of feeling of, uh, of just being attacked and, and, and it's hard and it's, obviously 23 people were injured. And they arrived at this scene of devastation and one reporter said this, a news commentator, said, staff arrived to devastation but they sang and danced in the streets as an act of defiance. They sang and danced in the streets as an act of defiance. Can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine, like, where does that joy come from? When you're face to face with, like, everything you're building sort of being attacked and, and your, your headquarters is rubble, where does this joy come from? Are they, do they not see the devastation? Are they, are they pretending it doesn't exist? Do they not care about the victims? What are they doing here? What's happening? And I want to suggest that a bigger frame of reference is what they had. They didn't just see the devastation in front of them with their eyes. Their vision for a better world, a world without apartheid, a world of, without injustice, was still uh, further out in their vision. And it was something they were confident that God was doing in their midst and that God would continue to do in their midst. And they were so confident of this, that God was going to bring freedom, that they were able to rejoice even in the face of this destruction and bloodshed. And the music that came out of the South African struggle for freedom says this very clearly. The music is not filled with, you don't hear songs of anger. You know, it's not rage against the machine. That didn't come out of the South African struggle for freedom. Um, the songs that come out of that period, they're not hatred for oppressors. It's instead you hear celebrations of what's coming. That's what they did. They celebrated what they knew was coming. It was songs like freedom, freedom. I know freedom's coming. I know freedom's coming. They were getting ahead of themselves, as Spencer talked about. Rejoicing in the day of freedom right in the midst of their oppression. And that's exactly what we do as Christians. That's exactly what we do. That's the exact kind of people we are. We're people who get ahead of ourselves. It's one of our hallmarks. We do not succumb to despair when life looks bleak and is full of suffering. Neither do we ignore that suffering. Those are the two strategies most people employ, I think is either I'm going to turn my face away from this and try to exist in a happy place where I don't have to look at the terrible things, or I look at the terrible things and I just get overwhelmed by them. And I get stuck inside of that. But we're, as Christians, we're people who are able to face those things and rejoice because we have confidence that God is at work. We, we, are, able, we are people who are able to face the worst that humanity has to offer, including inside of us, and in that very place of deepest, darkest sin, we meet God there. We encounter his presence in our pain and his promise to make all things new, to set everything right and to make, as Isaiah said, righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. That's the kind of people we are. We actually do then participate in that future, even in our present circumstances. That's part of what it means to be a Christian, is we're people who live between the already and the not yet, in the overlap of the ages. 
Everybody expected the old age was going to end, God was going to bring his kingdom, and the new age would begin, and everything would be right. Justice would come. But that's not actually what happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, the old age didn't end, but the new age started before the old, old age ended. Does that make sense? There's kind of like a metaphysical time warp thing that happened where the new age began before the old age ended. And so now we as Christians, we live in this overlap between the ages. We live between the already and the not yet. And so we can look at reality at its worst and we can rejoice at the same time. We can do both at the same time because we know, yes, this is true that there's devastation, there's bloodshed, there's injustice, there's oppression. This is true. But there's a deeper truth. That is also true, that God is at work to make all things new. And it's 100% guaranteed. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. That means the world has changed, objectively, forever. We're just waiting for it to come to fruition. But it's absolutely certain. Leslie Newbigin, who's another Anglican, um, who's a missionary, was often asked, like, are you, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic about the future of the church? I'm trying to get his opinion about that. And he said, well, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, so the question doesn't come up. Isn't that good? The question doesn't come up. I don't need to be optimistic or pessimistic about a fact. I only need to be unbelieving or believing. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. So we are people who, in the midst of our Advent longing, can celebrate Christmas joy. That's who we are. In the midst of our disappointed hopes, our unmet longings, Promises that have yet to be fulfilled. God is present among us, assuring us that all his promises of healing and freedom are yes in Christ Jesus, giving us Christmas joy in the midst of our Advent longing. And this is what Isaiah shows us in the text that we read today. Um, as Matt mentioned last week, Isaiah was written to people who had come back into the land. They had experienced a sort of fulfillment. Right? They said, wow, we're going back to the land. All God's promises are coming true. But when they got there, the situation wasn't you know, all roses and, uh, and peaches. I don't know if that's a real phrase. But, but it... <laughs> I mean... I had a nickel. Yeah, right. Yeah. I think Deb came up with that phrase originally. I think I'm copying from... Everything's coming up. One of the... Yeah. One of the geniuses of my wife. Uh, is that she's able to mix metaphors together and create like these new phrases that just spontaneously erupt out of her uh, that are, I think, I think they're so far beyond like the, the realm that we normally think in that she is, like she's pulling us into some sort of future. So anyway, that's one of the theories I have about my wife. Sorry, that, okay. <laughs> my wife doesn't like me to talk about that either, so. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> So this is what we see in Isaiah. Isaiah was written to people who, who, who were disappointed. They came back into the land, but the temple is rubble. The wall is not built. Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the books in the Old Testament, if you want to read about some of the issues and the problems they had, people were starting to oppress and exploit one another. So they, they come back from exile where they've been oppressed, and they start oppressing each other because they're like, well, we don't know what else to do, you know? I don't have any money. Can I borrow? Yeah, you can, but here's some interest, and I, we're going to take, you know. So, the, like, they had these, all these problems that were going on in their midst, and into that environment is where this second half of Isaiah is being prophesied to. And so Isaiah prophesies into that landscape of discouragement and disappointment this astonishing vision. It starts, this 
uh, chapter 61 that we read here starts chapter 60. It's kind of a unit where first this vision is given uh, of this deep, abundant flourishing that's, that's coming for the people. The joy and fulfillment of all God's promises are coming true. And then in chapter 61, it introduces this human character, this chosen representative who is going to accomplish it, the true king, the Messiah is going to do this, the Spirit of the Lord. And he starts speaking in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me, right? To do what? To bring good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort those who mourn. It's beautiful, right? To provide for all those who grieve, to give a crown of beauty instead of ashes, oil of joy instead of mourning, garment of praise instead of despair. This is... Uh, this is Leviticus 25 language. This is um, the year of Jubilee language. And of course, this is the language that Jesus uses to inaugurate his own ministry, right? In Luke 4, he says, that's what I'm doing. I'm doing the work of that Messiah that was written about in Isaiah 61. I'm bringing this good news to the, to the poor. And it proclaims this reorganization of public life around the will of God, which is what we just talked about in the Sermon on the Mount series, right? Where Jesus is proclaiming, look, there's a, there's a new political order that I'm establishing and calling you into. It's called the church. And here's how things work in this new political order. And so these are powerful ministries to the weak and to the powerless, to the marginalized, to restore to the full function, to restore them to full function within the community of well-being and joy. The poor here are not just those who lack resources. Um, the poor here are anybody who's distressed or troubled for any reason. That's the poor. And so we could probably all raise our hands here today, right? And say, hey, we're the poor too. We are the poor. We struggle. We're, we're in trouble in some way. Jesus said it later. He said, look, I haven't, come to, I haven't come to bring comfort to people who are already comfortable. I haven't come to proclaim good news to people who have it all together. No, I've come for people who are in deep trouble. I've come for people who... Uh, who are in deep trouble, and I'm here to proclaim the good news that God has won the victory over everything that holds you in bondage. Those who are so broken by life, they just don't have any more heart to try. Those who are so bound up in various addictions that the promise of freedom feels cruel to, to even talk about. Those who don't think they're ever going to again experience the favor of the Lord. Those who want vengeance meted out against those who've misused them. Those who think their lives hold nothing more than ashes and despair. Good news. That's what, that's, those are the people. Like, that's me, right? That's you. Those are the people for whom the, the Messiah comes and says, good news. I've come to bring good news for you. This echoes, again, the Beatitudes that, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount that are, that are good news for the people who didn't think they were going to have good news. And the result, Isaiah says, is that these people, these poor, these marginalized, these people will become oaks of righteousness. These people are going to actually be empowered to rebuild the ancient ruins. We're not just going to give them a handout. We're going to empower them to be full members of the community and do what they're called to do. And then in verses 8 and 9, Yahweh speaks. Yahweh begins to, to speak. And this is uh, kind of, it's kind of, it goes back and forth like the servant, uh, the, the, you know, the, uh, the Messiah is speaking and then Yahweh is speaking and then uh, the people are speaking and it's kind of this... Uh, cacophony of voices happening here. But in verses 8 and 9 that we read, Yahweh basically speaks and says, hey, you can trust me because of my character. I will do this because I am faithful. 
So this, this idea of human flourishing, doesn't, it's not some good ideas that humans thought up and are hoping for. This isn't based on whether or not you deserve it. Uh, God says, I will make a covenant with you because this is what I'm like. I'm faithful to my word. I will make an eternal covenant with you because of what I'm like. Not because you deserve a break. Not because you've had a hard time. But because of my covenant, my own faithfulness. And Israel's learning the exile was not the end of the covenant. God's promises are not conditional. They're eternal. It persists through all circumstances. So it doesn't matter what you've done or what's been done to you. It doesn't matter how many bad choices you've made. God is faithful and he will do it. And in verse 10, we see the people of Zion begin to respond then to this good news. And what's their response? I will delight greatly in the Lord. Let my soul rejoices in my God. And you hear echoes here of, of the Magnificat, Mary's song that, uh, that she sings after the, the, uh, the angel comes to her, Gabriel. Um, this is someone who is filled with joy, a people who are filled with joy, not because they're seeing all of it happen, but, but because they're sure that God is bringing it. So even in the midst of the wall isn't built, the temple's rubble, people are exp like exploiting each other. We're not being the people of God. Even in the midst of all of that, my soul delights greatly in the Lord because he's bringing these things to pass. It's interesting because he, uh, the, the people here talk in the past tense. He has clothed me. He has arrayed me. And in Mary's song, she speaks in the past tense as well about things that haven't happened yet. But she speaks in the past tense. He has knocked rulers off their thrones. The arrogant who oppress the poor. He's already done it. She's proclaiming something that hasn't happened yet as if it already has. She's getting ahead of herself in this song. And that's what we do as Christians. That's how sure the promises are. We can go ahead and rejoice. Because that's going... It's already happened in a sense. It's finished. The work has been finished and we rejoice. We get ahead of ourselves. And we proclaim these things to the poor. We, to ourselves, right? We proclaim freedom to people who are in prison, even though they're still in prison in many ways. We proclaim these things as if they had already happened. And then in, finally in verse 11, Isaiah asserts again that all of this is certain. This is going to happen because the Lord has promised it. As we read in 1 Thessalonians, God is faithful and he will do it. There's a remarkable vision here that calls Israel out of every temptation to despair and it prefigures the work of Christ who, of course, is the Messiah, who brings these things about in their fullness and the Easter joy of the church that looks forward to the complete renovation of the cosmos according to the will of God in ways that we can't predict and expect oftentimes. But that's what we do. That's We're people who get ahead of ourselves. We participate in the joy of fulfillment before the fulfillment. We sing songs of joy even in the midst of desperation and uh, devastation. That's how sure the salvation is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, said this, A sort of joy exists that knows nothing at all of the heart's pain, anguish, and dread. It does not last. It can only numb a person for the moment. That's the fake joy that we talked about earlier. It's not the real Christian joy we're talking about uh, in this passage. Uh, so that sort of joy exists, but the joy of God has gone through the poverty of the manger and the agony of the cross, and that is why it is invincible irrefutable. It does not deny the anguish when it is there, but finds God in the midst of it, it precisely there. It does not deny grave sin, but finds forgiveness precisely in this way. It looks death straight in the eye, but finds life precisely within it. Full of joy, we are enabled 
to believe that there was and is one in whom no human suffering or sin is foreign and in whose deepest love accomplished our redemption. That's the joy Bonhoeffer is talking about. It's the joy of getting ahead of ourselves. We can rejoice because our future is secure. Through the death, the death and the resurrection of Christ, God has won the victory over everything that enslaves us. Amen? So in the midst of our disappointed hopes, unmet longings, and promises that have yet to be fulfilled, God is present among us, assuring us that all of his promises of healing and freedom are yes in Christ Jesus, giving us Christmas joy even in the midst of our Advent longing. So what are you still waiting for? Where are you aware of brokenness, sin, injustice, things that aren't right? Maybe your career is stalled and you can't kickstart your way out of it. You're not sure what to do. Maybe you're realizing that your friends at school aren't very good friends. Maybe you're graduating from high school soon and you feel overwhelmed by all the choices and the expenses that are coming your way. Maybe you're discouraged by the dysfunction that's still present in your family. Maybe you're frustrated at the lack of growth in your own life, a besetting sin you just can't seem to shake. You wonder if God's really at work. You're waiting for something to happen, for some freedom to come. Maybe you just feel depressed a lot and you don't know why. And you're like, is there something wrong with me? As a community, of course, we're waiting for a new space to meet together. This is okay for a few more weeks, right? But we're waiting for something that's going to fit us uh, a little bit better. Um, none of the options, to be honest, from my perspective, none of the options feel ideal to me. And so we're waiting. We're, we're, we're saying, Lord, how long? What, help us find a space that is going to help us flourish as a community. Um, I, uh, I can get discouraged by I'm just a couple of things that, that I'm waiting for, I feel like, and the things that discourage me. Um, I, I'm waiting for justice for the poor and the marginalized. Every time I read the news, I get discouraged by what's happening in American politics. The wealthy and the powerful grabbing more wealth, more power at the expense of the poor. It really bothers me. And I pray, how long, O oh Lord? Like, what? Like, do something. Make something happen here. I'm waiting for sanctification and righteousness in my own life. I can get discouraged uh, by my own sin and insecurity. I get discouraged by how easy it is for me to find fault with other people, um, to be harsh and demanding and uncharitable towards other people. How long, O oh Lord? I'm waiting for those things. And sometimes in the midst of our waiting, I think we can have this attitude, well, I'll believe it when I see it. Right? You guys ever heard that phrase? I'll believe it when I see it. But actually, you won't believe it until you, you won't see it until you believe it. In many ways. You won't see it until you believe it. You're already and always seeing what you believe. That makes sense? So, I'll rejoice when I feel joyful. Maybe that's sometimes our attitude. I'll, I'll rejoice when I feel authentic joy bubbling up from within me. That's when I'll rejoice. But actually, no, I, I think it's the other way around. Oftentimes, you won't feel joyful until you rejoice, which is faith, which is believing the promises. What's, what's appropriate to do if God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus? Rejoice. That's, that's the thing to do. And as you do that, you begin to see in a new way. And this believing, this isn't an internal exercise of clenching our spiritual teeth, trying harder to make our brains work differently. No, we believe this by opening our mouths and singing the song of praise. 
We believe it by standing in the congregation and saying thanks be to God. We believe it by coming to the table and taking the bread and saying thanks be to God and drinking the wine. That's how we believe it, by blessing others, by confessing our sins, by kneeling, by standing. We give ourselves over to rejoicing in our bodies. That's how we respond and say yes to this. So my response to the things that I'm waiting for uh, uh, is at least two things. I just keep showing up in prayer and in praise and in community. I keep showing up to rejoice in what God has done and will do. Every morning I try to do a prayer liturgy that, that contains this confession. Praise the Lord, my soul. And all my inmost being, praise the Lord. It also has forgive me in there. <laughs> it also has space for me to look my darkest sins in the eye. I show up. I try to do that every morning despite how I feel. I worship with y'all every Sunday. Not just because this is my job. Right? but because I need, I need this. I need to rejoice with the people of God. I need to confess my sins. I need to sing the hymn of praise that angels and archangels are singing around the table. I need, to, I need this. So today, I want to invite you to respond. Let's face the darkness head on, acknowledging the reality of our pain and suffering and brokenness, but then let's also rejoice in the deeper reality that all of God's promises of healing and freedom are yes, in Christ Jesus, God has already overcome everything that oppresses us. We will see that victory in our lives.